Hello and welcome to Elixir Talk, your favorite Elixir podcast that somehow manages to get out from time to time, even though we're probably the most disorganized podcast you listen to. Uh, my name is Desmond Bowie, and I'm here with Chris Bell. Hey Desmond, I'm currently at my mum's house in London. So, well, actually not in London, very far away from London, but uh, I'm doing this while I'm vacation. So, you know, commitment to the show. Well, we're great to have you. Well, it's great to be yeah. here. Another exciting episode of Elixir Talk. <laughs> Yeah, this is a particularly exciting episode because we're joined by a handful of very special guests from Dockyard. It is the Lumen team. Um, Lumen, you may have heard of, uh, which was recently announced, is a compiler for Elixir to target WebAssembly. I believe I got that right. Uh, I'm sure I'll be corrected, but I want to welcome uh, the five folks that are four folks that are here from dockyard i can't count there's two of us in the hangout anyway i'm gonna let you all go around and introduce yourselves so i'm brian cardarella i'm the founder and former ceo of dockyard um my role in the project is uh really kind of to make it a reality pushing forward i'm also kind of focused on the longer term vision of it uh that means more about how we can build out web applications with this eventually cool welcome uh i'm paul schoenfelder uh you know we've talked before in the past uh i was kind of the first person to come to brian and be like hey i think this is a direction that we can take your idea about bringing WebAssembly as a target to elixir um and so kind of like structured out how we might approach that with a new compiler um so these days, I'm primarily working on the compiler backend uh, and a little bit of some of the other parts of the project, but uh, those are mostly owned by Hans and, and Luke at this point. Awesome, Paul. Welcome back. Thanks. I'm Luke Imhoff. Uh, I joined the project at the beginning of February, and I work on the runtime. Uh, before that, I was just a normal and uh, senior engineer at Dockyard, uh, but a lot of people may know me because I write the IntelliJ Elixir plugin. Cool. Welcome to the show. Uh, I'm Hans Elias. I'm Hans Elias Bukham uh joining you from Norway. Um, I actually joined Dockyard uh, for the project. Previously, I worked on uh, some compiler mid-land stuff for Lang in my free time. So that was a good fit for Dockyard. Awesome. Well, glad to have you guys. Welcome. So I just want to say this is an Elixir talk first where we have uh, six of us on the podcast. So uh, we're going we're gonna to pray this goes well. I think we can do this, everyone. Um, but this is going to be a really interesting show. Uh, when Lumen was announced at ElixirConf, I think a lot of people had a lot of questions. So we're hoping that we can field some of those questions and learn a bit more about the project here today. Um, first of all, I just want to say the logo, which you hinted at a long time ago, right? There was a very interesting marketing ploy that seemed to hook a lot of the Elixir community for some reason. So, <laughs> yeah. So the, um, the, I had obviously just watched the Fire Festival documentary right before we started to <laughs> do that, that logo, uh, thing. And I was even talking about this in our Slack. And, um, I think that somewhere people are like, this is either not going to work or it's going to come off wrong. But it was pretty interesting to see how easily everyone got suckered into the, uh, like wondering about what it, what it was. So if, if yeah, marketing tip 101, the less you say, the more interested people will be sometimes. It was surprisingly viral. That's yeah. for sure. <laughs> and we wouldn't have had so much delicious pimento cheese without it. 
Indeed, <laughs> indeed. I also saw that like some people put it as their computer backgrounds, and it was it. Yeah, it did, it did pretty well considering it, it was nothing. In, yeah, yeah. So. we we had like um, several rounds of that planned out, but at some point. I was just like, all right, this is going to start making people angry. <laughs> and rather than, you know, we, we kind of got, I think we got the exposure that we wanted with the first round. We, we were going to actually start to go into like um, uh, encryptions on it, the, the, like number sequences. Little people puzzles. have to figure out like, oh, it's this latitude and longitude. And you have to show up on this that date. Ended up, yeah. 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 That, that ended up being probably uh, better as a concept than a reality. So Absolutely. I don't know if you yeah. guys have done this, but if you Google for Lumen Elixir, the first result is a um, energy drink. No, it is a regenerative hemp elixir called Lumen. Yeah, we, we saw that. Yeah, we know that. <laughs> We've seen it several times. Okay, well, if our listeners are Googling for Lumen and you come across this drink, that's not what we're talking about today. Well, they can go to our website, which is getlumen.com. Is it com or org? org. Getlumen.org right now. And there's literally nothing there. I mean, there's a picture, but they can... Uh, there's nothing to see there, is what I'll say about the uh, the website right now. So yeah, that's something that is going to be you know coming pretty soon here. Uh, we want to put together some of the final pieces of the project that we didn't have time to get done by the conference, but uh, then we plan to put up you know installation instructions and documentation things like that. Makes sense. So let's start right at the top here. So first of all, what is Lumen? So uh, Lumen is uh, right now the the immediate goal is to have a uh, compiled Elixir application for WebAssembly. So this is I can answer this in part also by what it's not. It's not a transpiler. So we're not taking the ability to just write Elixir code and spitting out JavaScript or even just um, you know just having an Elixir-like syntax. We're actually embedding the uh, uh, the beam uh, functionality within the browser. And this, we believe, our opinion on this is that it will introduce a new way to write web applications, a new way to think about web applications. And this is backed up in part due to some prior art in the, uh, the space of concurrency handling for uh, graphical user interfaces. So can you also introduce the concept of WebAssembly? I think there might be a lot of our listeners who aren't too familiar with what that is. Sure, I, I can talk to that, I think. Uh, WebAssembly is basically a new instruction set uh, that runs as like, you can think of it as like a bytecode, but it is designed as the same abstraction level as say x86-64 assembly. Um, so it's very, very low level with some primitives that are slightly higher. Uh, like SIMD instructions, things people may have heard of before. Uh, but the idea there is that by compiling to that rather than JavaScript, uh, the browser uh, VMs are able to optimize much, much more efficiently. And it also provides a really uh, good shared target for a variety of languages. JavaScript is not a great target. You know, if you're doing transpilation from some other source language, that's not a great target for a lot of languages where WebAssembly is a much more appropriate compiler target. Uh, so that means that uh, compiler projects, like meta projects like LVM, for example, can add it as just another backend. Uh, and likewise with other large compilers, say uh, GHC, the Haskell compiler, for example, has a variety of backends. It can add WebAssembly as a backend. That makes sense. So uh, we're talking about a language that compiles and runs in the browser 
Um, and then do we get the full DOM capabilities using WebAssembly? What's output? So WebAssembly is sort of agnostic about the host environment that it runs in. So this will explain why you've maybe seen some WebAssembly projects that don't live in the browser at all. Uh, there's a few of those out there like Wasmer and uh, there's like a Fastly project that also does that kind of thing. But when running in the browser, the host environment gets to determine what APIs are exposed to the WebAssembly modules. And so in the browsers, obviously that means the DOM APIs, the JS APIs are essentially exposed to the WebAssembly modules to use. There is some work that has to be done to sort of like glue them together, uh, but that is kind of like a thing that is also improving or, or getting addressed via web IDL and, uh, or they're calling it web extensions, I think. Interface I types know. is the current name. They So it was web IDL. Then at the median in Acarunia, uh, Luke Wagner just offhandly called it snowman binds with like the actual snowman emoji as because it's a, a straw man that's more frozen. And then, which he had to explain later on, like why he picked that. Uh, and then eventually they started to call it interface types because there's um, a guy on the WebAssembly committee, uh, Andreas Rosberg, who's like has much better like programming academic background. And he's like, no, calling those bindings is bad. This is a binding. What you meant is interface types. And then everyone's like, yes, that's a better terminology for this thing. Yeah. So basically what that does is it, it maps like APIs in one language to APIs or another and automatically allows trans uh, translating from one to the other. So let's say that you're an Elixir calling like a C function, you know, right now, the way that that stuff gets implemented is you basically write like the C layer yourself uh, using interface types, you know, it's able to do some of that translation for you. Uh, obviously, with C, Elixir and NIFS, like there's more going on in the the C layer. But the idea is that if you're just calling an API and passing some values, you don't have to manually transform those. Uh, the interface types proposal handles doing that automatically, and so that's how ultimately browsers will expose APIs to WebAssembly modules. Uh, the other thing that I was going to say is that WebAssembly is radically different from a lot of other like assembly layer uh, ISAs in the sense that it separates code and data. I mentioned this in my talk a little bit. So if you're interested in that, probably should go watch that. Uh, but the main difference there is that you can't take like the address of code anywhere. Uh, and there are a variety of implications that, again, I go into more detail in my talk about or the keynote about. Uh, but the main thing is that it requires us to do significantly more work to target WebAssembly than other platforms, but it's still close enough that we're able to treat it like another generic backend. Mm -hmm. So let's let's recap all of this. So we're, what we're talking about is <laughs> Elixir being compiled to WebAssembly and then that code running inside your browser. And because there's browser APIs exposed, we can therefore have Elixir that then generates something on the DOM. Am I being... Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So let's let's talk a bit about the the goals of the project. Like, what are you trying to achieve with bringing Elixir into the browser or into this environment? So I don't have to write JavaScript anymore. <laughs> moving forward, I mean that that that's honestly that that was kind of my my 
initial thought around this. So it's a, a little bit of history here is that um, Dockyard, uh, for a long period of time, we've been very much a client-side application development shop. Uh, Ember, which is uh, the, you know, at, at some point, tech shops have to choose sides in, in technology uh, in order to establish expertise. Um, or some people refer to it as like tech, tech niches. So we went the way of Ember. And um, I mean, not, not to get too much into the weeds here, but Ember's uh, market penetration was not what we were hoping it would be. And it's really kind of uh, petering out. Uh, I, uh, I don't like as a, uh, from a business perspective, trying to get into the React or Vue game at this point, because we'd be also rans. Um, my preference on, on uh, kind of uh, uh, like business strategy for adopting a technology at a consultancy is trying to get ahead of a technology curve rather than trying to buy our way into it after it's already established. Um, I also have had enough experience and been burnt enough times and I've seen enough companies burnt by JavaScript in general. The ecosystem, I believe, is not well maintained or at least not um, adequately maintained. You see the anecdotal things about, you know, people maintaining thousands of packages and uh, it we also have seen a lot of clients that have had uh, are just tired of having to be told every like two or three years they have to rebuild their product because there's some new JavaScript framework that's out. Um, this this is kind of all led me to the the conclusion that it, it's the JavaScript ecosystem is never going to settle down. It's always going to be very volatile, and a volatile ecosystem is very difficult to invest in. Um, as opposed to the Erlang world, where it's very stable, it's very it's very uh, unvolatile. Um, I understand that developing a new compiler and runtime around that kind of flies in the face of what we're saying here. But this brings me back to another point that I forgot to bring up during the keynote, which is that we're not trying to be a competitor to the Beam. We're trying to you know re-implement the Beam. We don't want to ever deviate and fork uh, what what the Beam is. So we're just taking what you know the beam specification is and implementing that as best we can in the browser and what the browser allows now the um the value back to dockyard in that way is that if we as a company believe that uh, uh erlang's concurrency model is the best way to build out concurrent applications you know from what we've seen the complexity of client-side applications has grown as such over the years that it's really becoming very costly in time and money to build out and maintain uh, these complex client-side applications. It's only going to become more so over time. And if our trust and our comfort level in the JavaScript ecosystem is not where we want it to be, then it it's in our best interest to pursue this as a technology and try to make it a reality. It, it is a bet that it's going to uh, pan out and kind of resonate. Um, I don't ever see it. I mean, to, to pretend to even say that it's going to replace JavaScript, I think is ridiculous. It's never going to happen. Um, it's hopefully going to, you know, find its good niche where building out, uh, really, uh, big complex client side applications on desktop and mobile is an easier experience with this is a faster experience and a more reliable experience. 
So at what point does this break down uh, client-server architecture? Because when I think about, I mean, is this... My, I'm still getting my head around, like, are, is this another client-side framework only running natively with uh, the Beam, or is this, like, a whole new paradigm for web applications? Right. So, so there, there's areas there that we haven't... We've definitely discussed, and we've, we've kind of punted around... Like, there's, there's a discussion we had one day on, you know, can we leverage Live View in some way? Can we even run Live View on the client? Um, we, we want to play nicely inside the existing Elixir ecosystem. So I, I think that Lumen fails as a project if we then have a separate package manager, if we have a separate set of pack, like libraries, if, if we can reuse existing pieces, then that's going to accelerate, uh, it, we want to we want to repurpose and we want to reuse. We want to um, leverage the power of the Elixir community um, and not have to have like all these you know other lane that you're in for for client side application development. Clearly, some libraries aren't going to make sense to use on the client, but um, it's uh, uh, yeah, it's kind of our our, our goals and hopes that um, that the project as a whole. Um, feels very natural to Elixir developers. It isn't something like we now have Elixir backend developers and Elixir frontend developers. Right. Like we, I think that would be a problem for us. So basically, it's inverse Node.js, right? Whereas JavaScript went from the browser to the server side, you're now taking Elixir from the server side into the client almost. I, I suppose you can look at it that way. Um, I mean, I would, I would still apply the same argument I've always made about... Um, uh, what is the term that's used for for JS devs that they isomorphic? You know, like that. Yeah, that isomorphic. Type. So I, yeah. I, I've always had a problem with that because the problems you're solving on the client are inherently different than what you're solving on the server, Absolutely. regardless of the language. Yeah. Um, the the one consistency I would see here for what we're doing is that the concurrency model and reasoning about concurrency would stay consistent. But uh, like working in the DOM and creating out performant applications is a whole like problem set onto itself that it would be new for uh, for Elixir devs to have to try to solve. But we're, we're, we feel that there's enough evidence pointing in the direction that this could be beneficial. Yeah, I think it's also possible to share uh, code between the front end and the back end. I agree with Brian that, you know, going all in on we're going to reuse absolutely everything and just have a few tiny pieces that are different on the client versus the server you end up with sort of this amorphous blob that's all hard to reason about. I, I like having a separation between here's my front end app and here's my back end app. But I do think that it's very powerful to be able to share code that is not front end or back end specific between the two. You know, that's basically all the like domain objects that maybe can be used uh, front and back, all the utility stuff, those kind of things, being able to share that code uh, is very useful, especially you know when you have test coverage uh, covering all that, and you don't really have to worry about it. It's just there yeah. and available for you like, to start like using. An example of that would be uh, live EX templates. So right now we have this kind of like bullet list of things we need to start experimenting with, and one of them is can we actually use live EX templates as our client side templating system? Um, the kind of test for that would be uh, what we don't want to do is then influence the development of live EEX in such a way where it's now like, okay, here's the fork in the road in the actual code where like here's the server side supporting code and here's the client side supporting code. If it doesn't work, then we'll go off and do something separate. 
but where it makes sense to reuse, we'd like to. Mm. So can I just ask a question as well here, which is why put Elixir in the browser though? Like, so you're talking about the concurrency model being really advantageous here, right? And the, the idea is that is Elixir the best way to do that right now? Or are you looking for like homogeny in the stack? I can answer that. One sure. of the reasons to do it is because sort of like how Python came to dominate scientific computing when really it's Fortran code that's super fast, is if we if Elixir and Erlang doesn't move now, there are already PHP compiled to WebAssembly. There's Ruby compiled to WebAssembly. There's Python compiled to WebAssembly. But they're all inscription based and they're all slow. So if we don't get a real like industry usage version of elixir out there we will eventually everyone will have an answer of like of course you can run the browser and we won't and so it'll be one of those reasons sort of like um front-end frameworks that don't have offline support where it's like well a, a customer may never use offline support but the fact that it's not a checkbox that you can check means they might just say we're not gonna use that tech stack right but aren't there more natural compile time targets for LLVM as well? And uh, there's some other languages that, am I talking about this right? By the way, I want to paraphrase this by saying I'm not that good at any of this compile time stuff. So uh, kind of pulling anecdotes out of the air. That's actually another reason why to do a functional language, an immutable language like Erlang now, is because WebAssembly descended from ASM.js, which was this thing where people figured out that they could trick browsers by like oring with zero to let the browser know it was an integer. And that became ASM.js. And then like Unreal Engine poured some of their games into the browser and was like, ooh, look at this cool demo. This Unreal game is running. WebAssembly came from that, which means that right now WebAssembly is mostly works great for C and C++ to the point where like there's a feature of WebAssembly that is specifically there to emulate the V tables that C++ objects use. If we, as a functional language that has different needs than those imperative languages, don't get in now. WebAssembly could harden into a target where we aren't efficient on there. And so we'll never have the chance to get into the browser because we would have to reimplement everything on top on C. Yeah, I mean, the WebAssembly target and LLVM IR are both, you know, they come from very much like the C, C heritage. And it shows, but there is not anything that prevents them from being good targets for functional languages, uh, dynamic languages is very much possible. And I, I do agree with Luke that, you know, getting involved in the process early, particularly with WebAssembly means that we can ensure that that platform evolves in a way that is supportive of all language paradigms. I think that's important. But as far as Elixir being a good language specifically for the front end, um, I think it remains to be seen. I think it's less about the language and more about what you can do with it. And so I think that's where Brian's points about, you know, being able to construct UIs uh, that are highly concurrent, that can handle failure independently of one another. I think all those things are very unique to Elixir and Erlang and as far as I'm aware, no other language really has that kind of capability. There are some languages that have things that are sort of similar, like, uh, you know, common list has like this idea of conditions and restarts. You get something kind of close, but it's not at all the same uh, when applied to like a concurrent UI. And I think that 
that's something that is very easy to work with, very easy to reason about, uh, especially like this component-oriented design. It seems to like it very cleanly maps the idea of processes, actors. And my personal thought is, you know, I don't do a whole lot of work on the front end, but I, I have definitely in the past. And I always felt like I was struggling with finding the right abstractions for the UIs I was building where I look at Elixir and right away I see things that, you know, map clearly to what I would want to be doing on the front end. Uh, I was just going to say, you actually see a lot of the kind of JavaScript frameworks sort like iterating towards some of the stuff we're going to get out of the box for free with Lumen. Um, like React and um, a lot of the uh, other kind of cutting edge JS frameworks have adopted in part some form of functional programming in like on top of the JavaScript programming model. Um, it, it becomes a bit hairy. And if you're just like it, if you're not getting into um, like framework development, it kind of okay, but it's, it seems like that the industry has seen the value of functional programming but JavaScript as a language uh, isn't there. It's easy to violate functional programming uh, ideas in JavaScript as well. But it's it's enough that um, I mean Elm is the perfect example, right? Elm has done really really well with with uh, uh, putting a functional programming model into the, into the web, and then from there you get a lot of really nice uh, developer uh, tool experiences that you are very difficult to reproduce otherwise. And so um, on top of the, uh, you know, the syntax, which, you know, is always nice in Elixir and on top of like OTP and some of the, um, the process handling concurrency management that you're going to get inside Elixir. Um, what we're also hoping is to leverage some of the other uh, pieces um, of, uh, of uh, what we're bringing into Lumen. Um, Luke touched on this during his part of the keynote, but um, Basically, treating your application as a node within a network of other Erlang applications. Um, can we do that? Can we um, actually, instead of you know having JSON serialization deserialization process occurring to get data, can we just emit Erlang terms that um, our uh, our runtime uh, is absorbing, and then we don't have to deal with the overhead of serialization deserialization. Like I don't know if a lot of people know because they they look at Live View and it's like it's so fast. But one of the bottlenecks is actually the the uh, the JSON layer. Um, if you remove that bottleneck, you're going to get a significantly faster um, uh, experience in Live View alone. If we can do that uh, with Lumen, then there's all these kind of interesting things that start to, to fall into place. But it, it's a matter of like, you know, slowly, you know, step-by-step step getting there and then testing it out as we go. So what are some uh, some kinds of applications that people would want to build on this? And I don't want the answer to be anything. Uh, like where's a key, where's a key uh, benefit that doing something like with WebAssembly, like what, what does this open up new kinds of applications or is it just, you can build your same applications only faster and with more code reuse. All right. So, so if we were to not include Lumen in, the, in that part of the discussion for a minute, some of the interest from industry on WebAssembly is in part performance. Um, 
another real big interest is distributing applications in the browser that can't be easily decompiled. So you have uh, a lot of companies that have really gravitated towards uh, WebAssembly because now they they no longer have to distribute their uh, their product through app stores as natively built desktop applications. They can utilize the distribution model of the web and be confident that their IP is not going to be stolen because it's you know compiled in WebAssembly. And now at that model, in that point, it becomes a mat- matter of you know, a subscription-based service or something like that in order to access it. So uh, there are some uh, major benefits. So that that is just like a general WebAssembly benefit onto itself. The uh, the type of applications that we're hoping to build uh, with um, uh, with Lumen on the website, uh, I mean, I would kind of um, I would kind of put these into the same categories we're seeing with complex client-side application uh, app, client-side apps, which would be productivity tools. Um, anything that you're going to be having open for a long period of time, uh, content-based sites, I don't really see being a, uh, a good, uh, candidate for this. Um, there's always going to be reasons why you're going to want to go with, you know, JavaScript and HTML. But for, um, for some companies that have, um, some very complex application requirements, uh, this could be a really good fit. We know that you know some people ask about blockchain type stuff, especially if you start getting you know the node uh, functionality working. That could be a potential. Um, but right now, like yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but it's we don't have any applications that we have in mind to build off of it right now. So I know you don't want to hear the anything thing, but we're, we want to put it out there and really start to see what direction the community starts to take this in. And, in that regard, I also want to stress that we don't want this to be a dockyard like language and framework. Like we want to, we've released it under the BSD license. Um, while we're funding the project, I don't look at it as being necessarily owned by dockyard. We want this to be, uh, you know, open contributors. We hope to start expanding the core team with, with outside dockyard people very soon. Um, and really start to kind of, um, make this a community driven effort. Oh, sorry, go on, Hans. Uh, and obviously this would uh, be, uh, in many ways, it could be like a, a bit of a different way to build user interfaces and applications uh, compared to uh, what we have in JS. So uh, at least, I mean, it remains to be seen if it works out, but something like uh, larger applications that may be able to run offline in the browser, something like Google Sheets or Google, uh, yeah, Google Docs in general might turn out to work really well with uh, with Lumen in the browser. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I would agree with that. I just want to be really clear here as well. So for the listeners out there who haven't yet seen the keynote, first of all, please go and watch it, ideally before you've listened to this episode. But um, let's just clarify one thing. So you did not ship the beam into the browser, right? That, that no. doesn't happen with it's Lumen. re-implementing the beam uh, for the ground up. So the same fundamental runtime behaviors semantics are what we're shipping to the browser but we didn't take the beam and like cross compile it to web but we still get all of the same concurrency benefits that we get today and the same kind of primitives and everything like that which is what you're offering in lumen correct correct yes the outside behavior will be the same except for things that in the Erlang docs are said they're for debugging because obviously some of that represents internal things of the beam because the problem with 
Beam is and Erlang is that it doesn't actually have a spec. Erlang is whatever the Beam is. And so it's sort of the same problem that Ruby had before, like Rubinius and JRuby came on where there was no Ruby spec. And so right now we're we're just caveating like if the doc says debug or if it's something about like the system info call where it's definitely something specific to their implementation, we won't match it. Like we won't yeah, we'll necessarily match try the and pit cover numbering. the things that are like commonly used uh, of those things for sure, like emulating them as much as possible. Uh, but some of these like very low level details of the runtime are obviously different. Um, in particular, when targeting WebAssembly in the browser, there's considerably large differences uh, in the API because those APIs just simply don't exist in the Erlang side. But if we're just talking uh, surface area of the existing OTP Erlang um, APIs, like we're going to try and cover as much of that as possible. So going forward as well, we're talking about keeping Lumen up to date and in lockstep with whatever the Beam releases and that will be one of the correct what that will be something that the project has to do going forward right so for example we're more or less targeting like otp 21ish 22ish area right now we do not have that coverage yet but that is one of the things that we're hoping to not only work on ourselves but get community contributions on and start bringing that uh, capability over um and some of it is just compiling the Erlang standard library with Lumen versus uh, like rewriting everything. That's not a thing we have to do. But uh, it's all the runtime stuff. The things are provided by the Beam in C that are different. Mm-hmm. Um, and Luke can talk more about the specifics of like where the runtime uh, differs. But as an example of how we'd have to do compatibility, like uh, if something like persistent term came out. And it became popular in the ecosystem. It's it's something we would have to add to our version. That since persistent term is implemented in the C code, it's something we would have to port to Rust and put in our code. Right, right. So let's let's just dig into that a bit more. Right. So we're saying that the runtime here is written in Rust, correct? So yeah. Yes. Whereas the Beam is obviously in C, so you're porting everything over from that into Rust and then re-implementing yeah. it, and then that for, gets compiled into the WebAssembly code. Yeah, and and for a lot of it, it's not. Don't think of it as like translation style port. It's more like what is the outside behavior that people will notice and will do that? Because um, that's one of the reasons why we didn't. B- besides some of the things that uh, Paul has talked about in the keynote about like how loading the beams would be slow, so we need ahead of time. Um, do, uh, not directly using the C and M scripting is part of it. Is is it's um, even for us it's somewhat hard to understand, and so we didn't necessarily model. We don't even necessarily use the same names they use because they they have kind of historical names, and they don't necessarily match like how from user land we think of it. So like we've been very careful that like is like all the is functions map to Rust structs that match those names, so it's easier for people to work on the code. And so that maps more cleanly from the low-level implementation details and the like userland code that we're used to calling in Erlang or Elixir. Right. So can we talk a bit more about the history of this project as well? I know we um, in the pre-call we discussed the fact that there's a kind of three different parts where this comes from. So um, Hans, I believe you were working on one of those. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Uh, yeah, um, I started working on um, a project called EIR. Uh, even before I joined Dockyard, which is uh, 
sort of infrastructure for for working with and and uh, compiling down and optimizing uh, Erlang or Elixir code. Uh, I, I held a talk about this at, at Codebeam, uh, like a previous version. It's a bit outdated, a version before um, some changes now. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it involves everything from, from the front end where you actually take Erlang or whatever you take in and parse it. Then it lowers that down to uh, an immediate representation uh, where sort of uh, pattern matching compilation and all the optimizations are done. Uh, and once that is done, that's where uh, Pulse uh, Cogen takes over, which does LVM Cogen. Uh, and one thing that I think is a bit uh, unique about our approach here is that uh, we we only have one single uh, like IR where the the main amount of the optimizations is done, including pattern matching uh, and uh, say uh, just constant propagation, type uh, inference, everything is done in the same IR which could potentially involve some interesting uh, interesting things in the future. Mm. Cool. And then, Paul, you're working on another part of Lumen as well. Is that right? Yeah, so uh, kind of like scattered parts around the runtime and the compiler front end. Um, you know, the early version of Lumen's Erlang front end before I met Hans, uh, I had started working on and I was scouting out how to do the IR when I came across EIR and started talking with Hans and we're like, okay, let's meld these two together. So that, that ended up being uh, EIR at that level. Uh, but there's still like the like executable shell around the compiler that um, I'm still working on. And then the cogen is basically everything from EIR down to native code. Uh, so that's where I'm lowering from EIR to LLVM IR, uh, and LLVM takes care of most of the optimizations at that level. Uh, and then we generate like object files, uh, executables, does linking and all that jazz uh, there, as well as like stripping out unused code. So this would be a major place where dead code elimination happens, uh, which was one of the major reasons why we pursued an ahead of time compilation approach as opposed to another virtual machine. So if we're re-implementing the Beam here, does that mean that we could actually, theoretically, in a future version of Lumen, run uh, run this as our new virtual machine? Or actually, I know it's a compiled target, but could we wholesale swap that out and use this instead of the Beam effectively? Yes. Um, so definitely the goal is to be able to sort of transparently swap out your use of the beam with lumen it's not a primary goal to replace the beam right like that's not a thing but i think that it is important that it is possible to use lumen in that way just because i think that that's a good signal that we have re-implemented things correctly that the semantics are the same the major difference of course is in how you actually use that right so with lumen you're generating an executable or in the case of WebAssembly, a WebAssembly module uh, whereas with the beam of course you're shipping the virtual machine and probably an otp release so there's all the bytecode files and all the config and all that jazz that has to go into that um, and i think that the standalone executable being able to deploy that is a really really powerful deployment paradigm to use uh, i mean if you've ever worked with go 
or even Rust, um, when you actually deploy those stack executables, it's just so easy, so nice to, to use. You don't have to worry about like what versions of things people have. They can just download this thing and run it and be good to go. That opens up uh, the ability for uh, Elixir and Erlang to compete in enterprise environments where like they'll only do vendor-supported stuff. So like as an example, Cloud Foundry like has a support build pack for some scripting languages, but they don't do Elixir and Erlang, so we can't even do a release there because it's multi-file. But it does support a single binary that you can run. They mean it for bash scripts, but it's also how you deploy Go, and it could also be the way that you deploy Elixir or Erlang using Lumen. And it's not just like a future target. We run most of our tests for the runtime in the BIF locally on our machines, which means the Lumen x86 single executable target works just fine, and we're always testing it. Right. So, I mean, Luke, you said earlier that there's no spec for the Beam right now, and Erlang is the spec. Does that mean that uh, it's been very difficult to re-implement the Beam into Lumen, or has that not really been a challenge so far? No. We have to reverse engineer yeah, like, pretty much. Some of it, it's been a balance of, do we try to understand the C code and do what it's doing? And somewhat understanding, like, is this necessary? Um, so we haven't done, like, phash it, but part of the layout of the structs in C in Beam is specifically in a specific order so that phash produces a specific value. So we will have to see if there's any code in the Erlang or Elixir ecosystem that depends on a specific phash value that is dependent on technically an implementation detail of the beam. Right. Right. Which I guess you won't know until you have more people contributing to the right. project, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Well, on, on a lot of those, I've tried to just go by the docs and whatever the docs say, that is the outward behavior. So like when the docs specifically call out some behavior, I write a test for that. I'm like, well, that must be important or like it bit them in the past or it was something they wanted to make sure it worked that way. Have you been in touch with the OTP team? Uh, somewhat to... Uh, I've talked informally, yeah. Somewhat. I, I followed a couple of bugs because I thought the behavior of OTP uh, biffs was weird. Um, they have disagreed with me on all those. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, are they receptive to this? They're, they have a reputation for being uh, rather closed. Well, I, I don't know about Lumen in particular. Like, the, I, I never approached them about, like, hey, we're building this whole new thing. Will you help us, like, land on a spec? That's a conversation I think we probably want to have. But I feel like that's a conversation that probably will need to occur through, like, the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation project um and i don't think we're quite to the point yet where we can say like all right here's the things that we've identified are need to be specified so that alternate implementations such as lumen and any others can then take advantage of the, these specifications uh, but that is something that needs to happen yeah in order to even get there though we have to establish presence and we have to get to a particular point where we're taken seriously. And so it's, it's going to take time for us to, you know, get that groundswell of momentum behind the project where we can then, if, if there are areas that we can contribute back to the beam in some way to not only improve Lumen, but improve the beam itself. Um, that's where it's probably going to happen. As far as, uh, uh, the, the OTP core team goes, I, I mean, I'm very much aware of how, uh, you know, ownership of tech can feel at times, and I, I, we have to, you know, walk the line in terms of uh, not 
stepping on toes too. It's that's why we're going to be very clear that we're not trying to do something that's competitive or a fork or uh, seen as a you know external threat to the beam. You know, we totally recognize that they're the leaders in that space, and if we can make um, uh, the Erlang ecosystem better as a whole by introducing Lumen, that's that's really our goal. That makes sense. So uh, can we just talk a little bit about trade-offs as well? I know you went into a bit more of these in the talk, but what are we losing um, f- with not using the beam here? Like, uh, is there anything where, you know... Uh, hot code loading? Right. Is that, hot, I, codes, hot code yeah. swapping? Is that, uh, is that the only thing that we're really thing. talking about? I know we talked a bit about performance in your talk and uh, you went into some of that as well. Is there, is there any other caveats well, here? The, the other thing, because I'll bring it up because like, we have to stop marking from saying it, is that you can't say the term battle-tested anymore because right. The, right. specifically the Beam was battle-tested, not the Erlang programming model. Like, So like Lumen is not battle-tested. It has mm-hmm. the same programming model, but like it's not battle-tested in the sense of that we know it does not crash when running you know, some large fraction of the world's yeah. phone systems. Yeah. And I think... Yeah, I mean, that, that comes with time inherently, yeah. of course. But and I, I think with the with a trade off with uh, hot code reloading, uh, I think that might help us sort of uh, establish ourselves in a bit of a different uh, uh, market segment than Beam. Uh, so by mm-hmm. by removing hot code reloading, uh, we we gain the ability to make uh, the programs potentially a lot smaller, and we we might also be able to do uh, a lot more interesting optimizations on the code. So uh, we could potentially. Do a lot of interesting stuff, which uh, due to that feature in the beam might be hard for them to do. Yeah, we can reason about the program as a whole rather than having to always leave the door open. Like at any point, this code can change to a different version. And so, when you're doing optimizations, being able to do whole program static analysis is really important. That's one of the main things that we gain. The other thing that we also lose here is that as of right now, we don't have any real kind of like external JavaScript interoperability. Right. So while I don't, it's been discussed a little bit, I, I really don't want to see in Lumen where we're constantly making calls externally to, to the JavaScript libraries. However, we have to recognize, and I call this like the Google Maps problem. No one's going to go ahead and re-implement the Google Maps uh, library in this. So there has to be some sort of uh, you know, middle ground where we can you know, hop over the fence to still you know, take advantage of of libraries and uh, uh, pieces of JavaScript that we otherwise don't have the time to or ability or really want to re-implement. Right. It's almost JavaScript as a NIF, I guess, right? In that. Right. And it, so that could be it. Th- this, this gets into the details of how we did what we did to call the DOM APIs. But since we're on Rust, we're using the Rust WASM ecosystem. And part of that is there is a crate, which is what Rust packages are called, called WebSys. And that wraps all the APIs that uh, browsers expose, which is a lot. Um, and not always obvious what their names are, as Brian hit on when doing the demos. Of like, It's not obvious what ser- some of the APIs are called or what class in the DOM API stuff is actually on. But that is actually powered by a thing called Rust WASM BindGen, where they're generating bindings to call the JavaScript API. Because right now, in WASM, you can only pass integers, as Paul said in the keynote. And because of that, when you compile the code, Anything with WebAssembly that calls into a DOM API, not just Rust, but C, C++, Scheme, anything that does it, is actually using integers to somehow say, I want to call this function with this argument in my memory space. Please copy it out of my memory space in WebAssembly and somehow make it into a JavaScript object. 
And so there's always a JavaScript shim file with like an array of JavaScript objects that keeps them from being garbage collected when you want to use them in WebAssembly. And that means we need to know the type signature and their name ahead of time. So if we were going to allow calling random JavaScript libraries, we would have to come up with a syntax to write an elixir to help generate that shim. Mm-hmm. Right. But yeah, we have to have a way to generate the bindings from Elixir, not just from Rust. Yeah. So with with by doing it in Rust, that set of things is fixed. Uh, where what we really want to be able to do is dynamically generate those bindings from Elixir, and uh, that's still very much a, a work in progress. Uh, our ideal case uh, for, say, as Brian mentioned, using Google Maps, we would like for it to be as easy as you write an Elixir module, which. Uh, hopefully quite easily wraps the API for Google Maps and enables you to mostly, at least in Elixir, make a module that can use Google Maps, if that makes sense. That's how yeah. we want, that's what we want to land at, but we're obviously not there yet. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Yeah. We have talked, I did talk to the like Wasm Bindgen team in the WebAssembly meeting um, and they see. They think that it's possible for us to use this library and to do this, but um, it's mostly speculation at this point. Right. I, I mean, that brings up an interesting point, which is: uh, is is this WebAssembly like ecosystem is is pretty new, right? Like, so it's a kind of an evolving Very thing much. right yeah. now. And does this mean that you're having a seat at the table and playing a part in some of the uh, some of the development? Yeah, of it as we're well? we're at the meetings. Um, I went to. There was an in person meeting in. A Coruña, Spain, and there was like 40 attendees. So we had a seat at a table of like 40 people, and a lot of the other people are representatives of the actual browsers. And some academics, some academics for Bitcoin, some or blockchain in general, some academics uh, represent like the security of WebAssembly. But it's a very small ecosystem. Like the WebAssembly community group supposedly has a thousand people, but only tens of people show up to the video conferences. And only forty people showed up to the in person. So, like, we we can help a lot and have a big effect on the future of WebAssembly and making sure it works well for us. In one of those areas, and, and maybe Luke can correct me if I'm misspeaking here, but I, I think that some of the things that help the optimization of Lumen because it's a functional programming language are a bit different than what some of the other uh, other teams are hoping to implement in WebAssembly currently. If they're doing it from C, if they're doing it from Rust, even, even from JavaScript, um, like our our needs at times are are haven't been thought of yet, or are slightly different than what um, WebAssembly has been implemented to do thus far. Yeah, it it can help for that. Things that are some of the arguments about functional programming is like a functional program would like this, but if we're there to say like no, we if we use this, we will be faster. Um, is is like that hand on the scale of like this should be emphasized because otherwise it's people saying that like I can't get chicken or rocket you know the, the popular schemes to to run but those are usually seen as more like learning languages and academic languages well if, if we're an industry language saying we would like this it'll have more emphasis um, realistically that right now even though it seems bad that we need JavaScript to WebAssembly everyone does. Um, and it won't get rid of until there's a proposal called garbage collection types where everything that the browser gives you is garbage collected, every element, every reference to the DOM. And so until those go away, we won't get rid of that shim. And so we're competitive with everyone else because of that. But we have to make sure that however they do GC is 
something where we can handle the the equivalent of Malik and free calls um, that they give to us. The, ni- the nice thing too is that as WebAssembly continues to develop and improve, uh, we we're pretty confident that at, that our kind of like V1 uh, benchmarks around render performance and application runtime performance will be about equivalent, maybe a little bit slower, but about equivalent of what most of the cutting edge current client-side frameworks are seeing. As WebAssembly continues to improve and develop as a target for us, Lumen is going to benefit and be able to take advantage of these uh, the new features and really kind of push beyond that. And one of those things would hopefully be like a, a true threading system at some point. Um, like right now, where the goal is to to use um, to distribute the uh, the the processes across a few different web workers. Uh, we did some benchmarking internally. Um, the numbers seemed like they would work for us, but this is kind of it is essentially a stopgap for now. And if we do get the true threading uh, at some point in the future, we can take advantage of that and continue to improve the performance. Yeah, that's probably the area that is the most uh, like shaky right now, most bleeding edge is how threads are handled in browsers and WebAssembly. Um, and we actually went a little bit further than even spreading it across multiple web workers right now. It's actually more efficient to run in a single thread uh, and and just you know do the same sort of uh, scheduling that Erlang in the Beam does on multiple threads on a single thread. Uh, we can do many, many processes using that, uh, you know, hundreds, thousands before it, it really starts to become a burden. And we have the option of spawning web workers, but the one thing I brought up in the keynote that is a sort of a problem or at least a pain point is that uh, the way the beam works, it has a single scheduler and it's designed so that it starts up in a single thread, single process, and then spawns new instances of the scheduler on other threads. Uh, But all those threads are identical. In the browsers in WebAssembly, the main thread is cooperative with all the UI rendering and a variety of other things that happen on that main thread. And then web workers are sort of, they're essentially equivalent to processes, but that's the threading model that exists right now. And each one of those is different in that it doesn't have DOM access, doesn't have access to a lot of the JS APIs, um, but it does not have to cooperate with you know UI rendering and things like that. And so you have two very different types of threads and the need to essentially, like if you're on one thread and you need to do anything UI related, you have to now communicate with that main thread. And so it it adds a great deal of complexity uh, trying to do that. What we really want is, uh, and that doesn't even get into the whole problem of shared memory, which is kind of the main thing that is a blocker there. Uh, but what we'd really like is a much lighter weight threading abstraction, something more akin to like POSIX threads uh, and the ability to either transparently or, you know, call DOM APIs basically is what I'm getting at. Uh, We have sort of figured out how we would do the communication uh, between the schedulers to handle things like events and, uh, and rendering to the DOM. But uh, you know, Complexity-wise, I think that we're kind of waiting for that whole picture to stabilize a little bit better before we go whole 
uh, all in basically on on threading and WebAssembly. Right. But, so uh, can you? Um, I mean, we talked a bit about like WebAssembly and. Um, Luke, you mentioned that there's other languages that are obviously using this as a compile time target. Um, can you talk a bit about the space and what the competition looks like in that space right now? Is there anyone who's like figured this out, has a web framework, has everything kind of on lockdown, or is it a bit too early? There's a few. Mm -hmm. uh, Rust is obviously a big one. Uh, they're probably the furthest along in that space. Uh, there are a few other languages that have managed to make WebAssembly a target. I know I was in contact with a developer who had built a version of Haskell kind of in the same vein as Lumen uh, that targets WebAssembly, um, but there's no real web web framework there. There's in C-sharp.net world, there's Blazor, which is another uh, sort of like almost Rust tier quality and that they have, you know, comp compiler support and API support for working with the DOM. There's like a web framework. Blazor's a little weird in that they're interpreting the CL CLR, the uh, the the like IR or the bytecode that like .NET is built on. Is they're doing interpretation of, and they're shoving an interpreter into the browser, which is a little weird, but it it is fast for them. And that's weirdly what we saw too in the. Um, uh, I, I don't think I reported it in the graphs, but when we did Hans Interpreter running like the same um, spawn chain demos as I was doing, he was only 2.4 times as slow. So like in general, for people that aren't aware, like the Ruby debugger in Ruby is like three times slower in general. The Erlang stepping debugger is about three times slower in general. So for the interpreter being 2.4 times as slow was kind of expected, but the fact that we saw such fast speeds for WebAssembly and that our WebAssembly time, because of the magic of browser technology and the fact that the WebAssembly still goes through the JIT part of like the compilation that was already there for JavaScript, um, our interpreter is actually quite fast, even without the WebAssembly. And so that's probably why Blazor is fast enough, even when though they're interpreting. So like probably right now the most... Complete one is probably Blazor, and that probably would be the most competitive because it's sponsored by Microsoft, so there's a lot of money behind it. Right, right, right. So, I mean, that's an interesting point here as well, right? I think uh, you touched on this before as well. There's there's a lot of big companies throwing their hats into the ring of WebAssembly, right? And uh, you, you mentioned the browsers being one of them. Um, and we talk about this a lot on the podcast anyway, about how Elixir is kind of on the back foot in some ways that we don't have a huge company sponsor by the way, thank you to Dockyard for doing all the sponsorship you've been doing. Um, but yeah, we we don't have the kind of investment that some other places are putting in. Um, so do we? Do you think that this project can get there? I, I mean, I know you all probably believe in it deeply. Are we are we certain that we can get it to the place where we can compete with everything else? And uh, do, like, how do you feel about that? Winning Mindshare is a whole like other conversation. Yeah. I think where we can bring it to is we can get it to a place where we can start building applications with it. Mm -hmm. um, the 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 idea that um, of what market we're looking to you know compete within and like I said earlier, like we're not going to be even you know anywhere near one percent of what JavaScript is currently doing. Yeah. You know, if we have like a percent of a percent of that, I would consider that a success. It's uh, the, I mean, the kind of the, the question that we keep hearing a lot of podcasts for the Elixir and like you know blog posts at times is like you know what can Elixir do to win and it's like you know win in quotes. 
Um, I, I don't, I think that is just keep filling in the gaps of what, uh, what Elixir provides. And we're doing a really good job of that. Um, Looming can help out in certain areas and, and help kind of push and influence the decision-making process on which technology companies decide upon. The other thing too is that it's, I mean, technology goes in waves. We typically see like a 10-year shelf life for a lot of applications within companies. Mm-hmm. And so when the next, you know, if we're looking at that historically, you know, that that 10-year bump is usually coming in the next few years, like 2021 through 2023 it's typically going to be 10 years after like the initial crash back in the early 2000s, you know, 10 years past that, not 10 years past that. So I, I think that as long as Elixir continues to kind of like position itself as a serious contender amongst, uh, you know, I don't think there's people out there that question its technical capabilities. It's really a matter of, you know, companies decide whether or not to go with the technology is number one. You know, if we invest real money into this, is it going to be around in a few years? You know, are we going to be shooting ourselves in the foot by choosing something that is gone? Um, number two, uh, can we easily hire uh, talent for it? Mm-hmm. Um, and number three is really comes down to like, what are the capabilities of the technology? So if as long as we're filling in the capabilities side of it, I think that that will help energize and, and create a potential talent pool of people that want to work in the technology. And then as long as there's enough people that work in the technology and are around to, to really push it forward, that answers the first question on like, is this technology going to be around for the long term? Mm. No, it's a great point. I think also to as far as whether or not Lumen can be a viable competitor in this space, WebAssembly specifically alongside things like Blazor or the Rust Wasm ecosystem is we can get it to a point where technically like a lot of the an- answers are answered, <laughs> questions are answered, but the major thing is getting the help to close the gap, right? Like build out the things that it's just a matter of time uh, of getting done. That's all the APIs that need support. It's uh, getting a lot of the little runtime bits uh, support build out and added um, community, right? You, you got to have an ecosystem around it to support the effort because obviously like Dockyard may not want to just indefinitely invest in Lumen and keep the three of us working on it full time while nobody else is really doing anything with it, right? So if our main goal is to like get enough of this project out there, uh, you know, get community involved and try and build up enough of an ecosystem where it's self-sustaining, right? Because that then becomes a piece of the argument towards what Brian is talking about when you're talking to companies about this technology. If there's an ecosystem, if there's momentum around it, then the argument of whether or not this is going to be around for a while, whether or not there's people interested that you can find people to experience, like all those questions have some degree of an answer. Uh, so that's the most important thing from my perspective. And we've actually already seen community involvement. Um, I mean, Zach, uh, Daniel, who, who works at Dockyard but couldn't see the project before, was the first one to put up the PR. But almost immediately after that, we got community contributions from uh, Quinn Wilton and um, uh, Nate Haight. And, um, but uh, we got, I think, 
six and maybe now it's seven PRs from Alan Matson, and he implemented all of the maps nips for us while we were on vacation. So um, we're already seeing community involvement with it. So we feel pretty good about uh, getting the community to help us with all the biffs so that it's really um, to like, we won't hit weird crashes where this NIF is, you know, getting a NIF error when the compiler is ready. No, it makes sense. So, uh, I mean, yes. Yeah, so let's, let's carry on on that thread. So if people want to get involved today, there's obviously some work to do around the biffs that you called out in, in the keynote. Um, mm-hmm. Are they all documented on the GitHub page? Uh, where can folks go to get involved with this? Um, there's issues. So there's a there's a label just called runtime colon biffs that lists them out. Um, and then they're, they're kind of categories together of like, you know, these, they're grouped by like, if you do this one, you probably get all the other ones or like, you know, because a lot of the Erlang ARD variation is like this one just but with more options. Like a lot, like there's, I think like 20 things with spawn in their name, but if you implement spawn opt for you have done all the work under the covers for everything else and the other ones are just fewer options. Um, so a lot of, so like there may be like 100 to 150 BIFs left, but a lot of them group like that where like they're very similar. Um, and even right now I'm working on Rust macros, so you have to write far less boilerplate code to do a PR. Because um, like I said, at the keynote, um, as we prepped and I was sleep deprived, I still was cranking them out with tests in like an hour. So it, it's not a lot of work and it's a very easy thing where I think that's the coolest thing to say that you worked on a language uh, VM, like, because that's very low level and very impressive and um, something that anyone in the ecosystem could do, even if they're not that familiar with Rust, because they can just copy a previous PR and make some changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Well, hopefully there's some listeners out there today who can jump into the project and get involved and dig around. Um, and yeah, I mean, we're coming up to this hour, Mark. I could literally ask you guys questions for the for the next few hours but i want to be conscious of our listeners out there as well um i am personally very excited about the prospect of lumen and what elixir in the browser could look like um i think the idea of having a component model that's backed by processes and supervision trees can be extremely interesting i think uh we've seen some really interesting parallels with things done in scenic as well to date that if the folks out there haven't seen that yet uh, it's definitely worth checking out some of Boyd's talks, and we'll put those in the show notes as well, just to give you a little hint of what um, of what UIs could look like in the browser written in Elixir, and that's obviously in Scenic, but great parallel there. Um, so I think there's probably a lot of more questions everyone has, and um, I'm sure uh, the four of these guys will be happy to take those questions. You're all in the Elixir Slack, right? And there's a Lumen channel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a Lumen channel now. So, you know, questions uh, should go in there. Uh, if you just have like, uh, how does this part work or whatever, that'd be definitely a good place. Uh, you know, issues and feature requests and, and just things of that nature. Uh, the issue tracker uh, on the Lumen project is a good place for that. And um, by the time they hear this, Hans's PR to land the interpreter we used at the keynote will be in and people will be able to try out the interpreter. It won't have the greatest way to actually make the the code to run in the interpreter, but his steps work. And so you could try it for yourself, at least with the interpreter side. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'm wrapping up the uh, code gen backend as well. So that should be merged uh, sometime in the next couple of weeks here. And uh, at that point, we'd have the complete tool chain uh, for people to start using. So incredible. Yeah. I mean, I'm excited to see more progress and, uh, 
hopefully we can have all of you on the podcast again, or maybe we can dig into a bit more of the technical details in other ways as well. Um, but yeah, thank you all so, so much for being here today. And I just also want to say thank you to Dockyard as well. This is, I know it's a huge investment from your side. Um, I think it's an incredible project and clearly has a lot of potential. And I think thinking about Elixir in this very far future facing way could be really beneficial for us as a language and for an ecosystem as well. So thank you on behalf of the community for that. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, that's about all for us for today, folks. So uh, as usual, it's been another episode of Elixir Talk. For the four of you, we all say keep elixiring at the end of the episode. So I've got to tell you that. So we've got to try and synchronize it. Okay. <laughs> so I'm just going to do a little wrap okay. up and then we'll do that. So uh, thank you very much for listening today. As always, if you have any questions, you can uh, reach us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash elixir talk, or you can open up a GitHub uh, issue at github.com forward slash elixir talk forward slash elixir talk. But thank you so much to the Lumen team today for being on the podcast. And we hope to hear from you all soon. And keep, keep elixiring. 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 <laughs> Yeah, we did it. <laughs>